this week on the Backtable podcast. That's exactly what we're trying to do now in, in research is we try and do a combined approach where we operate endoscopically, laparoscopically, and V-notes with two surgeons at the same time for radical endo because what is the most difficult is from above is the lower part. If the nodules low down on the rectum, halfway the vagina, it's difficult. If you come from below, that part's not difficult endoscopically. It gets more difficult as you get higher and higher. And if you use the best of both worlds, you know, you can meet each other in the middle. So that's, that's what we're trying now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. Welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and we have Dr. Jan Bacalant from Belgium here with us today. Thank you for having me, Mark. No, it's our pleasure. And we're here to chat about V-notes. And as we do at the beginning of all of our episodes, tell our listeners a little bit about you, where you practice, and how you became interested in V-notes. So I'm, I'm based in Belgium, just north of Brussels. I, I work in a sort of medium-sized hospital where I work as a, a gynecologist. But because of our setup in the department, I ended up doing, doing a lot of benign surgery as well. So I'm basically a general gynae surgeon with a focus on gynae oncology. That's the Melda Hospital in Bonnanden. I have an affiliation with the University of Leuven in Belgium as well. And I have a little research affiliation with the University of Lund in Sweden. Um, but I mainly work full-time in, in Imelda in Bonnaden. Tell us a little bit about what V-Notes is, what exactly that means, and, and what that surgery is. So V-Notes is a, it's a complicated term just to say that we're doing laparoscopy through the vagina instead of through the abdominal wall to make it easy. So V-Notes stands for Vaginal Natural Orifice Transluminal Endoscopic Surgery. It's an acronym because we operate endoscopically through the lumen of another organ, so not directly through the abdominal wall. Via natural body orifice and for gynecology, it makes sense to choose the vagina as the natural body orifice of choice to operate through. But there's other types of natural orifice surgery. You can operate transorally, you can operate transanally. The colorectal surgeons do TATMEs and Thomas procedures transanally. But for gynecology, it makes sense to do our, our natural orifice surgery transvaginally. So basically what we do in V-Notes is we do pretty much all gynecological operations by now without making any abdominal wall incisions. So the entire procedure is performed transvaginally, and we do this endoscopically like we would operate laparoscopically. With the same instruments, we insufflate the abdomen with CO2, but we use all those instruments transvaginally. It makes sense. I think in my own training, I'm a MIGS surgeon, and so I do almost everything laparoscopically. And I trained at an institution where they had strong urogynecology, so we didn't get a ton of vaginal surgery. Vaginal surgery in general is one of those things that I think in our training seems to be, we have a harder time teaching that, I think, than we used to. And while it's great that we're adding robotic and laparoscopic surgery for our patients, um, it doesn't seem like we're maintaining the level of vaginal surgery volumes to help a lot of us get comfortable. So personally, it's something I don't do very often. But is that something you've always continued to do? Is it something with V-notes that you reintroduced into your practice. Talk, talk about how you got interested in V-notes. I've always done vaginal surgery. I was trained in benign vaginal surgery, and I had training in, 
in shouter surgery, so the radical hysterectomies for cervical cancer to be done transvaginally as well. So I've always kept doing vaginal surgery, but VNOTES has now helped to, to really broaden the indications. And whereas in the past, we probably did 20, 25% of our procedures vaginally, we now do more than 95% of our cases vaginally. I started VNOTES more than 10 years ago, and I think to 2012, but slowly, step by step. My, my old teacher, endoscopic teacher, actually was always in the habit when he did laparoscopic atnexectomies to remove the specimen transvaginally. So he always made a colpotomy. He taught me, you know, at the end of a, a laparoscopic atnexectomy, make a little colpotomy and take the specimen out, not to have to make your muscle sheet incision wider in the, in the abdomen. And at the time, I was going through a phase where I was doing single side surgery. It was sort of 2011, two, uh, 2012. And there was a bit of a, a hype on single side surgery. I think it's it's sort of died down a bit because it's technically very, very challenging. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of evidence on on the benefits for it. Um, but at the time, we were doing a lot of single side surgery. It was with, with glove ports still back then. And it sort of made sense when we did a single side hysterectomy. You know, you could take the specimen out vaginally. When we say the single side atnexectomy, we're taking the specimen out via a colpotomy. And then we sort of started placing that same porch. Let's just have a look transvaginally when, we, when we've done that, made that colpotomy and see what it looks like when we put the port there. And then sort of step by step, we moved forward and, and started doing more and more steps of the procedure gradually. It wasn't like one day of the other, we start performing VNOTES cases. Um, and that's sort of how it, how it grew over time. VNOTES is not a, a new invention. I think the concept has, has always been there. And other groups in the world that have been working on that for a long time as well. I spoke to Lilo Mittler after a conference, and she used to work with Kurt Zem in Europe. He's considered sort of the father of, of laparoscopy. And she said that Kurt Zem, when he was starting laparoscopy, and we're talking 40 years ago now, I think, he already had that idea that we should move from transabdominal laparoscopy, we should move to moving these instruments transvaginally. And they tried it at the time already, so that's now 50 years ago. But the instruments weren't right, you know, the light sources weren't strong enough, things weren't there. So, so it's not a new invention, it's just I think instrumentation got better, our light sources got better, our cameras got better, so we, we got to the point where we can do these things that actually the forefathers of laparoscopy already thought of a very long, long time ago. I mean, I agree, I agree it makes sense. I think there have been plenty of opportunities where I thought I did a TLH on this little uterus and probably could have been a good TVH case, but I wanted to take a look and see whether there was endo, I want to make sure I get the fallopian tubes or if I'm getting the adnexa, it just becomes more challenging with a traditional vaginal hysterectomy. I think the barriers to many of us getting started as, at least I won't speak for everyone, but for myself, it's I'm not doing my colpotomies from below, right? I'm just not, I'm out of practice. I, I do 99% laparoscopic hysterectomy. So getting in from below, I don't get in from, I get in from above. Was there any point when you were as you were developing these techniques where you were using a laparoscope, but also watching yourself from below to sort of see where you were? Because I think for me, I would have to kind of get a sense of like, wh what are my landmarks from below and how does that relate to the landmarks that I'm used to seeing from above? We all have a different threshold up to what level we're, we're comfortable with, with doing, let's talk hysterectomies vaginally. And you know, some of us, the ones that have a big prolapse and they're basically hanging out, we feel comfortable doing that. And some very skilled vaginal surgeons will take out a one and a half kilo uterus without prolapse as well. But I think we all have a, 
a, a different threshold as to where we decide we're going to do this vaginally or we're going to do this laparoscopic speaking pre-venance now. And, and I think many of us don't or ne- didn't do as many vaginal hysterectomies as we technically could because we've gotten spoiled with laparoscopy and robotics. We've got better hemostatic control. We've got these fantastic bipolar instruments and sealing devices that just give us better control. And we can see so well what we're doing. And I think that's the main thing is when we're operating vaginally, a lot of things that could be within our skill set that we could be doing, we don't do because we just feel this little bit more confident in doing it laparoscopically because we know it's dry and we know we've seen everything well. And we just feel it's safer for the patient. And I think that's why many of us moved away from vaginal surgery for many cases into laparoscopic or, or, or even robotic surgery, just because of that confidence of visualization and hemostatic control. A- and that's now what, what VNodes brings back. Now we can, we can operate vaginally, which is the least invasive way for the patient and have our patients recover quicker. But we can still have that hemostatic control and that visualization that we've gotten so spoiled with in, in laparoscopy. So I think that's, that's actually what now VNodes brings to the table and helps in, in broaden the indications for vaginal surgery again. When you were starting out, was it primarily converted to, va- if, if you did a case and you feel like, I just can't figure out what we're doing here, was it a conversion to vaginal hysterectomy? Was it a conversion to laparoscopic hysterectomy, a combination of both? What was the learning curve like for you? I think that's it. It's hard to compare VNodes back then and now because it it wasn't an established technique, and you know it was more of a a very early on developmental curve where I didn't know really what the steps should be, and and it wasn't standardized. Almost, let's see what we can do. Yeah, my first hist- I started. You know, my first hysterectomies took four hours via VNodes, and you know now VNodes hysterectomies are significantly faster than laparoscopic hysterectomies. But at the time, it took me a lot longer. We didn't have good ports. You know, we were making the ports ourselves. And we and now we have standardized ports that are approved for transvaginal use. So that sort of made it made it difficult because we were developing the the steps of the procedure as well. Still. I think by now the procedures is, or it has been for a long time now, it's been established. We know step-by-step step what we should do. We know which instruments we should use. We know in, in which order we should be doing the steps. And that makes it, makes it a lot easier to do it now. As for learning curve of then an established procedure for somebody who has been trained in the technique and in a proper training setting, I think that also depends on your skill set beforehand. And I think one of the weaknesses of VNodes is that you actually need a double skill set. You know, you need to be confident in basic vaginal surgical skills and you need to be confident in basic laparoscopic skills. I think for most VNodes procedures, the laparoscopic skills aren't that hard because it's more grab and cut surgery. There's not a lot of need of, of retroperitoneal dissection. So I think if you have a basic skill set in vaginal surgery and in laparoscopic surgery, the adoption after proper training is quite quick. And most of the studies say 20 to 30 cases, but it all depends on how confident you are as a, as a surgeon to start. I think if, if you have no vaginal skills or no vaginal experience at all, then your learning curve is going to be significantly longer and vice versa. If you know, have, are just a vaginal surgeon with no laparoscopic expertise, but I think there's not that many of those around anymore then it's hard as well. But I think with previous training in both, it's it's quite a short adoption curve. We've recently gone through the training. We had the folks come down from a 
from Applied and, and do a course. So my group is, it's me and another big surgeon, and we have two urogynecologists that are in, in the next office over, next door, not in the next office building, but a close group who work together often. At, and we're just getting started. My partner's done a few. I've not even done one yet. So that's why I was excited to get you on. But having a couple of MIG surgeons like my partner and I, who honestly, just most of us are not trained in vaginal surgery, even though we're supposed to be minimally invasive surgeons and TVH is the least invasive. Most MIGS fellowships are really laparoscopic robotic fellowships. And so our decision to start doing it had to be very systematic and safe. And we had to have the right people in the room and having commitments from both Euroguy and MIGS is a great way for both divisions to improve their skill set to be able to do more uh, and everybody wins. But it's been nice to have that have that partnership. But it is something that I think vaginal surgery and colpotomy is, is a bit of a lost art for, for some of us. Yeah, it's always a huge advantage if you can start with more than one person in the department, go to the training together, go and observe with somebody with experience together. And then it's just easier to be true to get to get started. And it's, it's safer for the patient. I think that's exactly what happened over the years is teaching vaginal surgery. A, we're a bit less comfortable doing it because we don't see everything so well. But it's definitely a whole lot more difficult to teach vaginal surgery than to teach laparoscopic surgery because of that visualization issue. And I think with VNodes now, it actually becomes easier to teach vaginal surgery again, because now you can see endoscopically what, what your assistant or, or your registrar, whoever you're teaching is, is doing. So I'm hoping we're going to broaden the, the, the teaching of vaginal surgery again with this. Yeah, it's when you get in there and see it, it is pretty incredible to watch and you go, okay, ah, that makes sense. I think there's going to be some uh, part of that learning curve is visual cues and there's certain things I look for, you know, your brain just uh, notices things when you do hundreds or thousands of cases. And that's something that will just take time from a, a different approach. But I think that's something, it does take a commitment to doing a lot to get good at anything, especially a new surgical approach. Aside from cosmesis, what are the benefits that you've seen uh, and that, we, that we're finding out that happen for patients uh, when it comes to venous and maybe also for physicians? Mm. So, so the obvious thing is we're making no abdominal incisions. So, you know, aesthetically, I think for us as surgeons, that's a minor argument. I think we deal with a with a special population. You know, we're, we're just dealing with women, not with men. Uh, so I think in our population, it's more important than in, in the general population. I mean, we notice um, amongst patients, if, as a man, I have a knee injury and I'm in the locker room playing basketball and I can show my big scars to my mates. I feel like a big man. But for the female population, it is more important not, not to have any scars. But I think for us as surgeons, that's not a major argument when we're, we're actually deciding which procedure to, to choose and we want to choose the safest procedure for our patient. I think we've done two randomized controlled trials comparing V-notes with laparoscopy, one the halon trial for hysterectomy and a second one notable trial for atnexectomy, where we did in a single center blinded sitting and non-inferiority blinded sitting. We compared the two techniques and the clear significant outcomes were, well, one, it, there was no, it was a non-inferiority trial, so it was non-inferior. We had no more conversions in either group, but I think the, the more important ones was pain. So the post-operative pain scores were lower in the V-notes groups and the use of analgesia was lower. We had shorter hospitalization time and one of the outcomes was discharge within 12 hours. And that was significantly higher in the V-notes group than in the laparoscopy group. And we had, we had lower complication rates in the, in the hysterectomy group as well. But that's, you know, single surgeon, single, single sitting. So we're looking now at, or we're starting a multi-center randomized control trial comparing V-notes 
hysterectomy technique. So uh, laparoscopic hysterectomy, venous hysterectomy, and uh, vaginal hysterectomy. There's no good comparisons at the moment between vaginal hysterectomy and, and venous. It doesn't sound like an easy study to do, first of all, just being big and multi-center, but luckily vaginal hysterectomy and laparoscopic hysterectomies are safe surgeries and have traditionally pretty low complication rates. And so, you know, I think I imagine non-inferiority is probably easier to do than true benefit, but the fact that they're all pretty safe surgery, surgeries is, is a great thing, but to be able to introduce a new technique and show that it's also providing, it's as safe and also potentially providing some improvements like decreased pain is, is pretty amazing for a comparison against already pretty safe and well-tolerated procedures. So that's, exci that's exciting. There are things I think about with improvements though. So in, in Kentucky, where I work, we have a large percentage of obese patients, probably a lot more so than, than in, in Europe. Are there benefits outside of pain and, and hospital length of stay for venos? I think about there are patients that I just cannot operate on laparoscopically for hysterectomy because their BMI is high enough that I can't get them in steep enough deeper to see into their pelvis. Is that an opportunity or is that still a, that still a limitation for V-notes? Yeah, I, I think you make a good point. I think there's just three groups of patients that benefit specifically from V-notes and the obese is one of them. I'll elaborate just now. I think the other group uh, is the patients with previous abdominal surgery. Patients have had multiple laparotomies with mesogastric lobe abdominal adhesions. We address those laparoscopically. You start with an adhesiolysis. When you do them endoscopically transvaginally via V-notes, you can often stay below the adhesions and don't need to do an adhesiolysis. So that's a group that definitely benefits. The second group is the patient with a very large uterus. When we do a hysterectomy for a large uterus laparoscopically, we're using a manipulator. We're pushing the, cam um, we're pushing the uterus upwards to be away from the ureters. But that way, we're always pushing the uterus towards the camera, and we have to put our camera higher and higher or more lateral. And that's a group where venous is, is particularly good because you're pushing, with venous, you're pushing the specimen away from your camera, you're pushing it into the abdomen, and you're actually not working in the direction of your dangerous structures of, of the ureter and the bladder. You're working away from them. You automatically have your blood supply at the start of the procedure as well. So, so I think that's where you gain most uh, with venotes is, is on those large uteri. But the third group that benefits a lot is, is the obese patients. Any procedure or with any technique is more challenging as the BMI goes up. And it's the same for venotes. A venous hysterectomy on a BMI 50 is a lot harder than one on a BMI 25, for sure. But I think the degree of difficulty doesn't go up as much as it does laparoscopically. If, you, if you're operating a, a very high BMI patient laparoscopically or robotically, your, your distance to your specimen increases with the BMI. So you're, you know, you're using endoscopic instruments, but your pivot point gets a lot further away from your specimen in laparoscopy, and that makes it hard. In V-notes, the abdominal wall is, is as obese in the patient, but the, the distance to your specimen vaginally doesn't increase. There's more abdominal fat and it's going to be in the way and it's going to be harder with Trendelenburg, but at least your distance to your specimen from your instrument to the uterus transvaginally doesn't increase. And patients don't tend to have as much adipose tissue vaginally as they have in the, in the abdominal wall. So I think if I have a very obese patient, and, and you're right, we don't have those, those super high BMI, 70 plus, I, I don't see those. But with experience up to 55, 57, I noticed that it's, it's easier to operate them via venous than laparoscopically. So I, I never doubt if I have a high BMI patient. 
I know there's there's groups in the U.S. that have experience with with BMI seventy plus and say the same. You know, on those patients, they prefer to do venous than than laparoscopy. But of course, it gets more difficult. It always does. Are there specific techniques? I think about the bowel. There's two things, I guess, with the patients that are obese. Getting in, you know, certainly is a challenge. But I typically can find ways to get in things like Palmer's Point, where there's usually an opportunity to do that and and, and get a uh, pneumoperitoneum. But it's putting a patient upside down, right? We're not dealing with the same challenges as the bariatric surgeons who are operating in in the upper abdomen. Mm-hmm. So when they are operating, their patients are in reverse Trendelenburg, and all of all of their bowel get to go down, and there's decreased pressure on their chest. And so those patients, they're not getting as many complaints from the anesthesiologist saying, I can't breathe this patient, where in laparoscopy for gynecologic surgery, our patients are on their heads, and we get them in much T-Berg, and it's like, guys, we can't do this. And so T-Berg is what, as you know, allows us to get the bowel up and out of the, out of the, out of the pelvis so we can operate safely. Is the degree of Trendelenburg required for V-notes do you still have to put them upside down? Or are you able to use less Trendelenburg? And then in terms of your peritoneum, is it, is it similar pressures for VNets? I think on a standard case, we use the same degree of Trendelenburg. We use 20, 25 degrees for the endoscopic part. There's a vaginal part as well where, we, where the patient's flat. So it's a shorter term of the procedure that they need to be in Trendelenburg. But standard, we use the same degree of Trendelenburg. We use lower pressures for VNets. So laparoscopically, we'll traditionally work 12 to 15, I mean, I think that's that's very much a local habit and you could work lower, but that's what, what we have in our practice. And for venous, we stand at work at eight, eight to 10. I think that's really a collaboration with your anesthesiologist. The more they relax the patient, the lower pressure you can you can work on. I think for the for the very obese patients, we, we need to give them Trendelenburg as well. And that's always a balance. You know, it's the same with venous. You need to find that balance with your anesthesiologist. The pressures are a bit lower, and even then, we tend to try and give even lower pressures. I know for the super high BMI patients, you know, that you can also try and pack the bowels. You know, vaginally, you have access to put a big swab in and, and pack the bowel out the way. I think for most cases, we try and avoid doing that. And I think we only do it, or I only do it for the, for the very high BMI, because, you know, you pack, you dry out your bowels, you get more adhesion. So we try and avoid that in general. But on those challenging cases, that can help as well. I think another thing for our endometrial cancer patients, which is typically the, the very high BMI population, there with VNODs, we're now doing our sentinel nodes retroperitoneally. And that really helps because as long as you're doing them transvaginally, retroperitoneally, but there you don't need any Trendelenburg at all because you're working retroperitoneal. For, so for that whole part of the procedure where if you're doing it laparoscopically, robotically, your patient's upside down already, um, with V-notes, the patient's flat. And it's only for the small endoscopic part of the history to me, which is actually the smaller part of the, of the oncologic procedure, that the patient needs to go in Trendelenburg. But the majority of the time for both sides, the sentinel node, the patient's still flat on the table. So I think that's there's an advantage as well. I think I want to say for oncology, we don't have a lot of evidence yet. So that's that's all still in, in study settings. So talk me through that. You're doing this lymph node dissection primarily prior to the hysterectomy. Correct. Yeah. And you're getting into the retroperitoneal space prior to getting access to the peritoneal space? Correct. So, so we, we inject ICG into the cervix, as you would do in, for any case. And then we make our way transvaginally into the retroperitoneal space, actually to the obturator area, to the place where your obturator nerve exits the pelvis at the level of the obturator muscle. 
And then from there, you start your dissection quadrally to cranially down to upwards. And, and actually, the CO2 does most of the dissection for you. It, it, it opens the space up. I, I think besides the fact that it's less invasive and in, in your patient's flat, another advantage is that we, you follow the sentinel node as it is distributed naturally, the ICG. You go down to up. Whereas if we come laparoscopically from above, we see a green node and you may get excited and say, oh, I've got the sentinel node. I'm going to take this one out. But you've got to be careful not to take the second or the third node because that can be green by the time you come already as well. Whereas in V nodes, you don't have that risk. You come from the bottom, you automatically, the first green node you see is automatically the, the sentinel node. So I think that's, that's an advantage that in time with more studies, there will be a good place for V nodes in that group, I think. And that's done posteriorly. Initially, with the, the access for the node dissection, is that? There, yeah, there's, there's two routes of dissection. You, initially, we started like a, like a shouter incision, which is a lateral vaginal fornix incision, and then dissected para, the, the paravesical space. It's, it, it works. It's a bit more difficult to teach that access. So now we're actually moving to an, an anterior vaginal wall incision, similar to what you do for an anterior repair and do the dissection from there. And we found that it's, it's easier to teach that access to people who don't have, have shot experience. So it's like you're doing an anterior repair. You just go a little bit more lateral and you jump over the arcus tendinius and then you get into the right space paravisically. It just sounds like you guys are almost, as much as you guys have done, it sounds like it's just tip of the iceberg right now for what's possible with V-notes. It sounds like there's a lot of potential. I think what, what we see is we, we just get different anatomical access now. And the more V-notes we do, it's a gradual process. You know, it's, it's been over 10 years. I've done over 2,500 cases. So it's, it's not something you do in the beginning. But you learn your anatomy in a different way. And we actually get to spaces that are, are difficult to reach laparoscopically. You know, we're doing promoter fixations via V-notes in, in Eurogyne as well now. And that, that presacral space, the dissection there you're seeing structures that I've never seen before laparoscopically just because we're coming in from a different angle. So it, 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 there's definitely a lot, of, a lot of room for development in V-Notes still. And, and I think the most exciting thing is that we just, you know, we see our anatomy transvaginally in a, in a very different way and, and we get to reach different places. And that's something I noticed just even doing just the training and watching videos is Again, as I mentioned earlier, so much of what we do is visual cues is like, okay, I need to see the ring, the, you know, our colpotomy ring as we're pushing up. I need to sort of see that full ring, my posterior dissection, interior dissection, always opening all those spaces up, skeletonizing completely all those things. Big, big uterus, little uterus, 10 C-sections, doesn't matter. I want these same views. I want these same visual cues so I can understand where I am and where my anatomy is and where I can operate safely. And that develops over time. When you start out, you're taking little bites. And as you get further along, you're like where you can be a little more, uh, I won't say aggressive, but a little bit more comfortable uh, versus where you really need to kind of dial things in. And that's something that seems like it just takes years, which is what surgery is. But to develop an entire new approach to surgery, I think, and I'll, again, speak for myself, I think it's very intimidating to think about jumping into a new, new approach like that. Is it something that, are you seeing it being taught in residency? Because again, if we're teaching our residents, our trainees primarily to get comfortable that way, then it becomes a shift in how we practice as opposed to just a few select surgeons around the country. You make a very good point. I think the key to a safe implementation 
is standardization and good teaching. And and I think that's that's what we've been trying to focus on most is to really get the technique standardized because you know the more standardized it is the less room of variation there is in people in their learning curve and the lo- and the lower the learning curve is going to be. And then it's yeah, proper training and I think that's where you know you mentioned it, applied medicals helped us a lot with those standardized training courses. You know, we now give exactly the same training courses all over Europe, all over the US, in, in many other countries and in Australia. And it's it's all a standardized content. It's exactly the same presentations. It's exactly the same steps. And I think that will really help in, in keeping our, our complication rates down. It is something that worries me because most techniques go through that, that Gartner cycle, you know, where it takes a long time in the beginning to get the adoption going and then you know all of a sudden there's a lot of excitement about the technique and a lot of people get started and not everyone necessarily goes through the right training steps and you get a peak a lot of cases get done but then you get to a level where where you start seeing the complications coming and then there's you know there's going to be a bit of discredit to the technique because there's going to be reports on on complications and at that point, we're going to need the evidence to prove that in the hands of people who've been properly trained in a standardized way, this is what our complication rates are, and they are not higher than they are in, in, in standard other techniques. And I think that's, you know, that's where the studies are important and where the big complication or case registry, the, the International Note Society has a, a big case registry that's been going since 2015, where a lot of surgeons put their data in. And there we'll be able to see now what actually the complication rates are in the hands of experienced surgeons. And hopefully, you know, when that dip comes and the complications start coming in people who haven't gone through the proper training, that's what will help us defend defend the technique. Because what we see in the studies is that the complication rates are not higher than than in other techniques, if if not even a bit lower. So I think that's the job for science now, you know, to 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 get the, the technique established. What are specific complications? What are what are complications that are unique to V-notes? Because I, again, as I think about going through and doing a hysterectomy laparoscopically, I have the same steps. Every case is the same. Again, depend doesn't matter on the uterus. It's just like always the same steps, just different amounts of time spent on each one. But with my uterines, you know, taking them more immediately. So if it retracts, I've got a nice pedicle. Like how do you chase a pedicle laterally outside of the ring and those kinds of things? What are specific challenges and complications that one can expect when starting to introduce V-nuts into your practice? I think what you say on, on the uterine artery is really important there because obviously bleeding is our most common complication in, in all procedures we do, technique, all techniques. I think specifically to V-nuts, you get, if you're, we're talking history to me now, if you take a uterine artery, you get it right at the start of the case, not at the, at the end of the case and without going retroperitoneal. So that's a benefit. But a downside is that if you don't seal it properly and you cut it, it will retract behind the Alexis ring and then it becomes more challenging to to catch it. Now, if that happens, we take the ring out, you pull on your pedicle, on your uterosacral pedicle, and then you can grab it vaginally. But that's a moment where you need some vaginal experience to grab that. I think the main thing we always stress in teaching is that just take your time for that uterine artery and don't just take it once with a sealing device and, and, you know, and be confident with it. It will work nine out of 10 or 98 out of 100. 
but there will be a couple of cases on a, on a larger uterus where you're putting more traction where that is not enough of a seal. So, you know, take it a couple of times next to each other with your sealing device or with a standard bipolar before you cut it. Take your time on that, on that uterine artery and then, and then it's, it's never an issue. And also once you've done that, the rest of your hemostasis is easier. Then you can speed up and, and don't need to worry so much. I imagine the ring provides some hemostasis a little bit on the little stuff too. When I think about our transvaginal tissue extraction, when we put the, the ring in, put the bag in, it's putting significant pressure on the vaginal cuff for the time that we're doing our morselation. When you go back up above and close the cuff, there's been like somebody holding pressure circumferentially for whether it's 10 minutes or an hour and a half, depending on the uterus. You're providing some hemostasis. Does the ring itself provide some additional hemostasis and V-notes in the same way? It, it does. It, it's exactly like you say, it compresses. But once you take it off, you have to check your hemostasis uh, again. I think a, a second thing that it does is it, it lateralizes your urogen. We, we did some cadaver study to look at that. But because that Alexis ring pushes on the pelvic sidewall, it automatically pushes your ureter more lateral. And, and we saw when we did the dissection without the elixirs in place, we sort of had, you know, two inches between the pelvic sidewall and, and then a natural position of the ureter. And when we put the ring in place, that reduced to an inch. So it, it lateralizes your ureter about a, an inch. And that, that, I think, helps. And I think that's what we've seen in the studies that, that have been published so far is that we have less ureteric injuries than in, in laparoscopic surgery or laparoscopic hysterectomy but we have a slightly higher rate of cystotomy. And I think it makes sense because, you know, you're doing that dissection vaginally. That's what we all fear. That's what we all fear is doing that colpotomy is getting in from above and or from below. You know, I think that's the kind of thing that with time, I think that rate will go down, but you just have to understand, understand there are trade-offs. That is the one to be, to be aware of. I, I think it's logical that our... our Cystotomy rates are a little bit higher in the V-node studies than in the conventional vaginal hysterectomy studies because we're tackling more challenging cases. You know, we're doing bigger uteri and then bigger myomas and, and multiple C-sections. I think what helps there is, but this is now very technical, but I'll, I'll stay brief, is that instead of making your colpotomy as you do on a vaginal hysterectomy, just with cold, cold scissors and, 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 and a forceps, is to actually make it endoscopically so you can place your, your inner Alexis ring in a way that it is between the vaginal mucosa and the still closed peritoneum. And then you can use, you can make your, your dissection for your anterior colpotomy with endoscopic instruments. And I think with that, we now see that our, our, our cystotomy rates are going down. So I saw that on a video, because I think about patients had two or three or four C-sections and you know there's going to be some scarring in the lower uterine segment. But there's always that safe space between the scar from the cesarean in your uterine arteries, right? Because most of us, if we're doing C-sections, and I haven't done one in a while, but I'm pretty sure they still try to avoid the uterine arteries. And so when they're closing your hysterotomy from the C-section and the scarring, there's always that little window, that little safe window just anteriorly. So even if your uterus is plastered to the anterior abdominal wall, dissect posteriorly, jump over the uterines and just bluntly just push whatever's there and just isolate your uterines. I watched a video as part of the training and could see it vaginally where they placed the ring, not because they hadn't made their colpotomy yet, placed it up against that C-section scar and blew it up. And you could see that black, dark, because it, it, was, it was insufflated from the posterior colpotomy. So that black, 
thin single layer of peritoneum. You can see your uterines that you'd already gotten or going to get on, on on the lateral aspect. But just anterior to that, I could I could see the backside of that. And it was a very like, you know, light bulb moment for me. I was like, there it is. That's the spot. Like I've, we found, again, it's, I found it on, on the other side. It took me seeing it to realize what it was. And all of a sudden you go, okay, officially I get it now. I can sort of like imagine how once you find those opportunities, because there's like any surgery, you just, where are your safe spaces? Where are your opportunities for success? I saw that and go, okay, now that makes so much more sense. There's a completely safe space. I can just see it clear as day. And so again, that was that was a moment for me where I thought V notes was pretty was pretty cool. Yeah. You describe it beautifully. I can't describe it any nicer than you did, but that was exactly what I felt the very first time I tried it. Because I thought, you know, how can I try and reduce this rate? Can I place the ring and tried all sorts of setups? And then when the, the first time we put the ring that way and saw that, it was like, but now we can do these difficult colpotomies where in a normal vaginal hysterectomy, you're stuck. You know, you can make your posterior colpotomy tie off the uterus but if you can't make an anterior colpotomy, you have to convert to laparoscopy. But now, yeah. And, and, and in a vaginal hysterectomy, you're pulling the uterus down, you're compressing that tissue, you are making it more difficult. And what they keep stressing was push that uterus away, push the uterus away, push the uterus away. Just like you're doing from below with the colpotomy cup laparoscopically, you're doing it yourself and by pushing it away, you are, you're exposing those windows to allow you to visualize those small spaces much, much more largely. Exactly. And, and you have a double flow of, of carbon dioxide. You have your flow that goes behind the uterus and opens the space in the abdomen. And because you have that empty space there, as you describe it, it's, it's blue or black, you know, the peritoneum, because there's nothing behind. And where your bladder is, it's actually white. It's not that there is something behind it. So that that really, really helps. And if it's one of those uteri that's plastered to the abdominal wall, you can basically do your whole hysterectomy and just leave the uterus hanging on the C-section scar. And at the end, you shave the scar like you shave endometriosis. And that's the same way we do it laparoscopically. Mm. I mean, I think many of us, when we first get in there, when you're doing an abdominal hysterectomy in training, that's where you start because that's where your abdominal incision is, is right on top of the mess, is right in the scar. And when you get in laparoscopically, and you learn that's the last thing we do. If you see someone start chipping away at the scar first, it's like, whoa, 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 stop. Let's get all the blood supply and then we have a little dead uterus we can chip away. Seeing that done from below with the camera was 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 pretty exciting. I thought that was that was pretty neat. I think the other thing I was trying to visualize that will take some time is the ureters, because as we have that ring in, the bladder's anteriorly uh, anterior to us, the ureters are, are coming in lateral. The ring, like you said, it, it just it pushes it out of the way completely, right? Mm -hmm. They're just, once you've gotten your uterines first, I imagine the ureters are just no, now nowhere near. Not that you ever ignore them, but they're nowhere near where we're operating once the uterines are, are taken. I think the moment when you're closest to your ureter is when you're coagulating uterine artery. And that's actually the only moment when you're close to it if there's no endometriosis and they're in the normal position. The whole bend of the ureter into the bladder is behind the plastic sheet. And I think laparoscopically where we have our ureteric injuries is not where we go and dissect it to find it. It's usually when we coagulate too close to the vaginal cuff, it's right where the ureter goes into the bladder, the point where, where you normally don't even dissect it laparoscopically. 
And that area is is protected by the by the Alexa sheet, and then the ureter at the level of the uterine artery is lateralized a bit because of the pressure of the of the ring. So, talk to me. You mentioned mentioned endometriosis. Talk to me a little bit about how you address again. I think the bigger uteruses. We we've talked about that a little bit as well. But things like endometriosis or you know, pelvic scarring. How does that change your approach to V notes? I mean, are you addressing stage four endo? With venous these days, are you are there certain cases where you're just like this is just not appropriate? Like, how do you address that? What we teach is that endo is a contraindication for venous, and and I think there's no need to be dogmatic about venous. We got to think where our patient benefits most of the of the technique, and I think some patients will be better off with venous, some will be better off with a laparoscopy, some may be better off vaginally, some may be better off with a robot or, or an abdominal hysterectomy. I think we need to master the technique so we can tailor them to the patient's needs and not try and, op- and squeeze every patient into one little box. So I think there's no reason to do a case where you worry about a posterior colpotomy, whether it's going to be safe or not. If you even have that thought, you should put in the scope and just make sure it's safe. So I think from that point of view, we always teach that endometriosis is a contraindication, previous rectal surgery is a contra- contraindication, patients who've had pelvic abscesses, severe PIDs, where you don't know what your Douglas is going to be like, is a, is a contraindication. That being said, you know, in research, we try and check where the boundaries are and, and where V-notes can lead us. And I do think with the increased visualization that it gives us, you know, there is in time going to be a space for it in more complex procedures. You know, we're starting to do radical hysterectomies for cervical cancer now as well. And it's, it's, it's an amazing visualization you get. I've done a number of, of, of rectovaginal endometriosis cases, but that's n- not something that I, you know, I like to talk about in teaching. It's, it's just a whole lot more challenging and, and you need to be very familiar with, with V-notes anatomy before you go there. So, so I think the short message is just don't go there. You know, it's not, it's not necessary. <laughs> just keep it safe and do it laparoscopically. Yeah. Not easy laparoscopically either, obviously. But, I th- you know, I think, again, as I'm thinking about the anterior challenges, like are there potential benefits from below? Maybe if you can address the nodule and feel it, you can work around it, start laterally. I can see where in the hands of a skilled V-note surgeon who's been doing this a long time, is, are there potential benefits? And that's, that, that'll be interesting to see develop over time. Again, you make a really good point. You see the details very well. That's exactly what we're trying to do now in, in research is we try and do a combined approach where we operate endoscopically, laparoscopically, and V-notes with two surgeons at the same time for radical endo because what is the most difficult is from above is the lower part. If the nodules low down on the rectum, halfway the vagina, it's difficult. If you come from below, that part's not difficult endoscopically. It gets more difficult as you get higher and higher. And if you use the best of both worlds, you know, you can meet each other in the middle. So that's, that's what we're trying now. We've just made our first publications on that. But I think that's, that's far away from being routine. But I think the opportunity is there. There's definitely times when you want to go, what's behind there? I know. I think if, it, if it's clear behind there, then we're good. But the potential to do both. And that's something I've thought about as I try to visualize my first cases and visualize like how I would do these popping a scope in from above and watching myself entering in and seeing where I am. So I, I can match my vaginal procedures to my laparoscopic visual cues. Is that something that you recommend? I think that's a fantastic way to keep your learning curve safe is any moment where you doubt in your entry, Put in a five millimeter scope in the umbilicus, you know, the patient won't mind it. They'll barely see the scar. And 
you'll see what you're doing and, and someone can hold the camera from above while you're operating from below. And like that, you know, you safely build up your confidence in, in your implementation. I think it's a fantastic way to start. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about non-hysterectomy surgeries briefly as we get sort of towards the end here. I think when doing laparoscopy, we always say like fives are free. Like I hate putting tens in. I never use tens for any of my surgeries, 10 millimeter or, you know, larger ports because I don't want to close fascia. I want to minimize my hernia rates. Single site you mentioned, I am not a fan. I think those two to three centimeter umbilical incisions have such a high hernia rate. If I'm morselating, I make a mini lap fan steel at the same, you know, same size and do most of my morselation that way because the hernia rates from a fan and steel and we're as obstetrician gynecologists, we are and we are and should be confident making fan and steel incisions. They're great incisions to close. I try to avoid larger incisions in the abdomen all the time because of concern for hernia and also just pain. I mean, huge umbilical incisions, patients do not like those and they don't like their belly buttons to be messed with. When when performing a colpotomy for a single site vaginal incision. What are what are the hernia rates? Um, I imagine the vaginal hysterectomy closures are the same as a TVH, but for a non-hysterectomy case, when you're doing a posterior colpotomy and doing a V-nuts for a nexal surgery, what are the risks of vaginal cuff, in a sense, dehiscence or vaginal colpotomy dehiscence or hernia rates for those surgeries? Yeah. So for the listeners, you know, for a hysterectomy, we make the same incision and we have the same scar. You know, so that's it. If we're doing V-notes for other indications, and, and as I said, we do it for the whole spectrum of gynae procedures, that's where we're going to need evidence to prove that it's safe. Because with hysterectomy, we're reducing our number of scars or our number of incisions. We're taking the abdominal incisions away and we're just keeping the vaginal incision. Now we're in, in adnexal or myomas or whatever. We're taking the abdominal incision away, but we're replacing it with a different incision. And, you know, so, so there's, there's your, your question very correctly. Are, are we not taking any other risks by putting an incision in a different location. I think what we noticed is that those incisions are, are less painful because the innervation to the vagina is different to the abdominal wall, so there's an advantage. As far as I know, in the database, there's no dehiscences described in the, for a posterior colpotomy. We've had hematomas from the posterior colpotomy, but no, no dehiscence as far as I know. I haven't had any. I, I think the vaginal walls very forgiving. We know that from obstetrics as well. It heals very well and it doesn't get infected as easily. The two big questions that we always get there is one is what about deliveries? If we do this on young patients for ectopic pregnancy routinely. And two, what, what about sexual intercourse? Are, are we causing dyspareunia for these patients? I think the answer for the first one is we're, it's a worry in our head because from endometriosis, many of us are in the habit, if we've had rectovaginal endometriosis, we've shaved the rectum and we've made a, uh, we've resected part of the vaginal wall. We tell our patients, you know, have a cesarean section and not not a vaginal delivery. I think it's different in V nodes because we don't have that rectal shaving and we just have a scar in the colpotomy. I think the data that we have on V nodes are are limited. I think there's only one one publication we've made there. It's in personal experience. We've had num lots of deliveries after after V nodes and have not seen any problems. I think scientifically, we have data from specimen extraction studies, people who do adnexectomies and take the specimen out through the colpotomy. And those data also suggest that that incision is, is safe for a vaginal delivery after that. So I think that's not, not an issue that I worry about. And we do it on, on young patients. I routinely do all the ectopic pregnancies that way. Um, and we let them deliver vaginally. And our C-section rates or our tear rates are not higher. I think the dyspareunia is a much more important question to look at. 
And there we need to have big data. And there's, there's studies ongoing on that. We have data from the RCTs that we've done or the RCT on atnexectomy that don't show any higher problem rates. Uh, but those are small, small data up to now. Again, very technical. But I'm, I'm going to try and explain it anyway. I think it's really important where you place that incision. If you make your posterior colpotomy incision on the same location where you would do it for a hysterectomy, the problem then becomes that your vaginal mucosa retracts a bit. And when you close it afterwards, you don't have a lot of mucosa between the cervix and your incision to close. Right. I imagine if, I imagine if you're right up next to the uterus, which is where you want to be for a hist, you don't have much with which to close. Exactly. And what you do then is you, you actually pull your uterus into the posterior fornix. You pull your uterus backwards, and then you don't have a posterior fornix anymore, which could be a, a cause for dyspareunia. And that's something that, that I think is really an important issue to, to teach, is to where to place that incision. So for, an, for a non-hysterectomy case, your posterior colpotomy incision must be at least one, one and a half, two centimeters lower, closer to the rectum, but then your dissection has to be upwards. And then you have a lot of space to suture. But so you need to retrain that colpotomy from people who are used to making it for hysterectomy. You need to make it in a, in a slightly different location. And then I think from my experience, it's not a problem. I, I don't see any dyspareunia problems with that, but I make my incisions very low, far away from the cervix. I've seen folks that do colpotomy for tissue extraction for like myomectomies, right? Patients who are going to get pregnant, patients who are at least planning on getting pregnant, who are wanting to get smaller abdominal incision. So for robotic or laparoscopic myomectomies don't want to make that big incision, but you don't have a colpotomy or a, or a vaginal a colpotomy from a hysterectomy, but they're making a posterior colpotomy incision. And it seems like it works pretty well. How are you closing those? Are you just doing a barb suture single layer? Are you doing it in two layers? To, how do you close those? Incisions? Single layer to a vicryl I use, but probably whichever suture is probably not that relevant there. But we do single layer. I, I try and approximate peritoneum and vaginal mucosa together because it's always the, it's that dissection space between the peritoneum and the mucosa is where your oozing is and where your risk for, for hematomas is. And if you, can, if you can compress those two layers together, then, but I think whether you do that in a running suture or, or in, in separate, separate figure of eights, it probably doesn't matter. I think it's very forgiving there. I feel like I could ask another hundred questions about this. I know you're a busy surgeon and we're grateful you spent time. Any last thoughts for our listeners on V-notes, on things that they should think about when introducing this into their surgical practices? Yeah, I, I think go through the proper training pathways. They're available and they're available all over the world. I think you have listeners all over the world, but you know, these courses are being given in the same way everywhere. What worries me most is people watching a YouTube video and thinking, oh, can I can do this. And, and you know, it's, it's not difficult surgery, but as with any technique, there's, there's just lots of little tips and tricks and, and surgery is always in, in the detail. And if somebody explains you all those details, it will just be so much safer for, for, your, in, for your introduction. And then the second thing, I think once you get started is to start with the very, very easy cases. You know, if you start with very easy cases, then you know you can you can gradually build it up. It it will just be nicer. It will be safer for your patient. It'll be nicer for your whole team because it's a new procedure, not just for yourself, but for your whole OR team. And you have to get them involved in the process. You know, you have your scrub nurses and and, and your anesthesiologists, and you know you have to get everyone involved in in the process. And if you can then make sure that your first cases go smooth, you keep everybody motivated, and and it's a you know it's a safe and easy implementation. I think the problems we see is people you know who 
you try to run before they can walk and they start with a 800 gram uterus. That's not, not the way to start a new technique. I think that's not different than what we see with our colleagues, whether they're trying to start laparoscopic surgery or jumping in, you know, doing two to three hysterectomies a year and think, oh, we'll go ahead and just do this one kilo case. It's like, make sure I'm around for that one. Because I think, I think like anything with surgery, it is repetition, repetition, repetition. It's everything, you know, minimize variability. It is getting as many of these as you can. So you can start to see the subtle differences and nuances with anything. But yeah, it sounds like though it's a new approach, old adages are true. And it's all about, you know, developing techniques, start easy and work your way up and, and give yourself the space and patience and your whole team, the, the time and energy. But starting with that training, I can say from personal experience, having done the training, it's done really well. I mean, it definitely was important for us to do that. And as we start doing them where we are now, I think, I think the reason we're going to have good outcomes is because of the training and because of the team that we've built and the, and the number of surgeons who are committed to helping all of us, all of us get better. Actually, one, one last question. I just thought of this as we're wrapping up. Robotic surgery, single site, anything. And is there any uh, examples that you've used the robot with this stuff that you're using any additional besides straight stick laparoscopy? I think I assume that's traditionally what you've done. Is that something that's being done, that's being talked about uh, using V-notes in combination with robotic surgery? Yes, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, a whole big topic. I think we can do a whole podcast session about that, but I'll keep it brief. Um, we'll, we'll have yeah. you back. It's <laughs> inviting myself is what I'm doing now. Um, no, no. Um, with the current existing systems, um, I, I tried a couple of years ago and looked with a Da Vinci XI, whether we could do V-notes, and we did 30 or 40 cases. Uh, and it works. It's just there's, there's no benefit. It, it's making life difficult. You know, it's not made for it. And, and there's no space for the forearms. You can do it with three, but there's a lot of arm collision. It, it just adds a lot of extra time to the patient and, and no, to the surgery and, and no benefit. So I think there are no, but I think there's a lot of development in, in robotics and there's a lot of new systems coming. Single side system, you have the, the SP system from Intuitive. Uh, I work a bit with with Momentus. They're they're developing a robot for transvaginal use specifically for for V notes. And they're actually they're on the market. I'm I'm in Europe. It's a, it's not on the market here, but it isn't on the market in the US. Is that the one that goes behind the uterus and like looks up laparoscopically? And retroflexes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've yeah. seen that. So again, I think we're going to need studies. We're going to need evidence, and you know, it's, it's going to be hard. V-notes endoscopically is not not that difficult, and and our procedure times are getting so short compared to laparoscopy that you know, to prove a robotic benefit to that is gonna is gonna take time. But I think it's going to be the same as as with robotics transabdominally. We also don't have a lot of evidence yet, but. There is a group of surgeons that feels more comfortable doing it that way. And then that's absolutely great because that's better for the patient. And there'll be a group of surgeons that, that feels more confident doing it endoscopically, laparoscopically, or via V-notes. And I think whichever technique gives you the most confidence to do it safely for your patient is, is the one that, that you should choose. So I think there'll, there'll be a place for it in time, for sure, to, with developments of, of, of more and more new robotic systems. It, it will come. But I think at the moment, you know, it's for a specific niche. I keep saying last question, but then as you say something, a new idea pops in my head. But at the last, maybe this will be the last question. We'll see. Ergonomically, it seems like, you know, I've talked to general surgeons about this who, if they're doing upper abdominal surgery, they're standing in between the legs. They're operating, you know, the normal standing up straight laparoscopy in the pelvis, we're standing at an angle, we're leaning over no matter how well we set ourselves up. Are you sitting for these cases? Are you comfortable? This is like, it's just 
like you're sitting at a desk, like ergonomically more comfortable than in traditional laparoscopy? It's it's a big difference. I mean, I, I operate two, two and a half to three days a week. You know, if you do a lot of laparoscopy, it, it takes a strain on the shoulder, on your shoulders and on and on your neck. And with V-nodes, A, our, our, I said our surgical times are shorter. You know, we're taking in the studies half an hour off our hysterectomy times uh, with V-nodes, so your procedure is shorter. But you're also sitting, you're not standing up, and you're sitting with the screen straight in front of you. Your shoulders are, are close to you, and you're more comfortable. So it's it, it definitely makes a big difference. I have no problem being more comfortable. Uh, at the end of a long day in the OR, my shoulders are definitely letting me know more and more these days that they're, they would be happy if I found a more ergonomic way for me to do these cases. So on that note, I think we'll well, in, in, in respecting your time, we are so grateful that you were able to join us today. That was fascinating. And I look forward to seeing all the great work that you'll continue to do. You don't have to invite yourself. We'd be happy to have you on any day um, and chat about what you're doing, new things that you're up to, uh, advances in V-Notes. Thank you. Sounds interesting. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>